even have to listen to the sermon. Just scan the QR code right in front of you. You guys, you guys will be good. Uh, welcome. Hey, listen, I'm so glad you guys are here. If I haven't met you before, my name is Andrew and I'm in the senior pastor here. Glad that you guys are with us, whether you're joining us in person or online. Grab your Bibles, would you? Grab your Bibles and you're going to turn to the New Testament book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, we've got ushers that are going to come around all sides of the worship center. All you have to do is raise your hand and let them know you like a Bible. They're going to bring you one. And the fastest way to find Mark is going to be at the very beginning of your Bible in uh, the table of contents. It'll be in the New Testament. Look for the, the second book of the New Testament. It's Matthew and then Mark. Here's a heads up. You're going to wear this book out because over the next two years, through December 31st, 2025, we are going to do an exhaustive study, word for word, through the entire book of Mark. It's going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to it. So you turn there, Mark. Primarily today we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. We're going to have some other parallel passages we'll get to, but go ahead and turn to Mark. How many of you like to do puzzles? Anybody like puzzles? God bless you. I had the attention span of an attention deficit disorder gnat. This, this right here, I don't know if I'd rather eat guacamole, read a novel, or do a puzzle. They all sound horrible to me. Two summers ago, my family and I, we took a vacation to Colorado. And while we were there, with seemingly countless mountains to climb, trails to walk, lakes and streams to fish, and things to do, my family decided, my daughter Ryan, and my wife and the girls decided they wanted to get a puzzle and work on a puzzle. And I thought to myself, I paid what to come here so you could do a puzzle? And we can go back home and do that. So they bought not one but two puzzles and they started putting it together on the kitchen table because you don't need to eat there. It's just optional. <laughs> so they spread out everything on the table. They opened up the box they cut open the plastic bag, they dumped all the pieces out, they turned them all color side up, and then they held the picture at the front of the box of what it was they were trying to create. And after they did that, they began to separate the pieces out by color and shape. They put the corner pieces out first, and then they put the the straight pieces, the border around, and they started to build it out. And the whole time they used as a reference the picture. This is really what they were trying to build. And I just thought to myself, with an exacto knife in 13 seconds, I can cut that out for you. <laughs> I think that this is a really great example of what we're going to be doing for the next two years. You see, the book of Mark... We're going to find out today it's called a gospel. And the gospel is a great big picture. It's an ideal of who we as followers of Jesus are. Not only who we are, but all the pieces that come together to make up this beautiful picture of who we are. And over the next two years as we study the gospel of Mark, and I'll get to the gospel in just a moment, what that is, what it isn't. But as we study over the next two years together, each time we come together, it's going to be as though we were grabbing another piece and finding its place in the puzzle so that it all comes together. But all the while, we're going to keep the picture in front of us. 
If you look at a puzzle, what you really do is you, you kind of really begin at the end, don't you? You have an end in mind and you have this picture of what it is you're trying to accomplish. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to start our study in Mark by beginning at the end. And while we're primarily going to study verses 1 through 3, I want to begin by reading Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 20. So with your Bibles open, grab some space on your lap, get ready to read and follow along. It's going to come up on the screens if you need. But I really encourage you to bring the Word of God with you. There is no replacement. There's nothing like having a hard copy of the Bible in front of you. We want to teach biblical literacy here, including how to navigate the Scriptures. So Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 15, reads, And then he told them, this is Jesus, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name and they will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety and if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. When the Lord had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at the God's right hand. And the disciples went everywhere and preached. And they, the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. Well, Lord God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the privilege of getting to preach today. I thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together in a space like this to set aside time, attention, energies, and I pray that you would capture our affections. Lord, I pray that you would move through me now, that you would use me as a vessel to do your work. And Father, I pray for all the churches and all the pastors in and around our community who today are going to preach a God-centered, gospel-focused message. Would you anoint those lips? Would you touch people's hearts? that we would collectively in this community make much of you, Jesus. Father, I invite you to move in this space, in our lives today. God, I pray that I would preach with equal parts authenticity and accuracy and in ways that we can understand and apply to our lives. And so it's to that end that I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you alone, our rock and our redeemer. And the church of God said, amen. amen. So we're, today we're going to look at a 30,000 kind of flyover of the book of Mark. We're going to address the author, the audience, the date, the location, literary style, the purpose. We're going to look at kind of a big picture of what's going on in the gospel of Mark. Mark, the author, is a really unique individual. He's actually probably one of the most unlikely of individuals to have such a significant role and responsibility in the kingdom of God that God would use him to record what was oral tradition, that God would use him to work in partnership with several people like Paul and Barnabas and, and Peter, that God would use him in a way that is supernatural and miraculous because you're going to find out that Mark isn't always the most brave of individuals and not always the most loyal, but God does the supernatural in the natural. And that should be encouraging to you and I. That God still does the supernatural in the natural. That he can do the same in our lives. He can use us even when we feel unfit and unworthy. So who is John Mark? Well, he has two names. John, it's his Hebrew name. And he's given a secondary name. It's a, 
It's a Roman name. It's a Latin name, Mark, Marcus. And so what it does is it helps us understand that he's going to address multiple audiences. What we know throughout history, first century, second century, and third century historians, guys like Josephus and uh, Papias and Eusebius, we have both scripture and the, the history books to help us kind of build a framework around the person of Mark. So at the time of Mark's birth, Jesus is like middle teenager. He's probably 15 years old, which means that when Jesus gets near 30 and he's going to start his public life and public ministry, John Mark's a teenager. Like he's about as old as you guys. And he's in this region where all this stuff with Jesus pops off, where it all starts to unfold. And, and I have a really strong suspicion. I think I could even use some anecdote to support my suspicion that he is uh, an observer, that he sees for himself and he hears with his own ears and he might even experience at some level the ministry of Jesus. We know from both history and from scripture that he grew up a born Jew in Jerusalem. We know that he grew up in a prominent family. His mother She's called Mary, and Mary is a, a wealthy woman, and she's a substantial figure in their community, and they are early adopters of the faith. Like, they're a Christian family who choose to use their resources. And by resources, I don't just mean their money. They actually are going to open up the home that they have, and they're going to use their house to be a place of prayer and worship. In fact, if you want, I'm going to give you several parallel passages that you can refer to throughout today's message and then go back to as we continue. So look at this one, Acts 12, verses 12 through 15. Gets us a little insight into Mary and into Mark. Beginning in verse 12 of Acts 12, when he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate and a servant girl named Rada came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be an angel. So contextually what's going on in is here, Peter's in jail. And he's actually been handed down a death sentence. It's already been ruled on. He's just being held over until the next day when they can kill him and they can get rid of him. He is chained to not one but two Roman guards. And in this space, what's happening is what we as followers of Jesus are actually all called to. In James chapter 5, we're given a specific mandate about how we as a church should come around and pray for one another. So these followers of Jesus, these early adopters of the faith, they end up at Mary's house. And we know that she's a wealthy woman because she's got a large enough house to facilitate a, a gathering like this. We know that Mary's wealthy because she's got a servant named Rada. And while they're there praying, they're praying, they're crying out, Lord, would you save Peter? God, if you don't show up and show off, this is, this is it. It's, it's done for Peter. Like, the government has already ruled on this. Judge, jury, and soon-to-be executioner. Peter's life is coming to an end. Lord, we need a miracle. And they're, they're praying and they're worshiping and they're begging God for a miracle. And we know in the text that God supernaturally delivers Peter. Peter flees the jail and he shows up at Mary's house and he... And while they're there praying, they, this crazy thing happens where 
Murata opens the door and it's Peter. And instead of inviting him in saying, hey, guys, God's answered our prayer, she slams the door on his face, runs into the living room and says, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not going to believe what's happening. Peter, the guy we're praying for, the guy on death row, he's at the door. Like this is crazy dangerous for Peter because he's an escaped convict. He's a felon on the run. People are looking for him, I promise. And rather than invite him in, she slams the door on him. People are saying, you're crazy. Like this has got to be an angel. It's got to be Peter's angel. In the meantime, while they're all trying to figure out what's going on, here's Peter. Hello? Why do we act surprised when God shows up and shows off? Do you actually believe that God is a God of prayer? That he answers prayer? That he hears your prayer? That he cares? I believe that God answers prayer in three ways. We see it in Daniel chapter 6. Not a part of my notes. Not going to go there today. But God says yes, wait, and no. And here God says, yep, I'm going to deliver Peter. It's going to be miraculous. So we learn a little bit about Mary here. We learn a little bit about Mark here. We also know that Mark is a close friend. He's actually described as a companion of Peter. So it's likely that Peter was the one who shared the gospel, the good news with John, Mark. It's likely that Peter was the one who expressed to him the importance of having a, a faith in Jesus, not just a belief about God, but a faith in Jesus, who says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so it's highly likely then that Peter is the one who walks alongside of Mark as a mentor, as a discipler, and he's pouring into this guy's life. And we're going to see the importance of having these figures in our lives, these Christians, these men and women who have gone before us, who are mature and maturing in their faith, that in turn will pour into others. Titus talks about this as far as roles and responsibilities in the church. Older men, we have a responsibility to teach the younger men. Older women, we have an obligation to teach the younger women. And if we don't, how else will they know? Are we going to trust society to raise our families for us? Are we going to trust the schools to make the best decisions for our children? Are we going to trust politics and government? Are we? Listen, we can't even abdicate our responsibility in the local church. It's up to us to raise our families. And as part of a family of God, we need to step into their lives. We need to work at raising them up. So John Mark was the disciple of Peter. Look at this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. You can write it down in the margin of your Bible and reference it, or you can turn there if you'd like. It's toward the back of the New Testament. It says, your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Well, that's a telling statement. It wasn't just hyperbole that I think that Peter was the one who led Mark to the Lord and mentored him, but that term of endearment there, my son Mark, that was used as far as adoption. The Apostle Paul uses that with who? Timothy, my son in the faith. And so when it's used, you know that they've adopted him as family and he's pouring into him. So we see that he's close to Peter. The other thing that we learn about John Mark is that he's got a really important cousin named Barnabas. We're going to see that Mark comes to faith in Jesus. He begins full of zeal and excitement to be a part of the ministry. In fact, he's going to go on the very first missionary journey that the apostle Paul goes on. Paul and Barnabas, they're going to leave from Antioch and Pisidia, and they're going to take off and over to uh, an island, and then they're going to kind of go up into 
this, this northern region and, and really cool things are going to happen. But we learn that in a community called Perga, something happens. Either Paul says something or Paul does something or the, the, the missionary journey becomes too intense or maybe as a Jewish man, which is what John Mark was, the fact that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, maybe he was put off that the, 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 the gospel was reaching those who were not God's elect chosen people. We don't know. It's speculatory at best. But what I can tell you is that about midway through the missionary journeys, John Mark bails on him. Like he abandons Paul and Barnabas. Look at this in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. In Acts 13, 13, it says, Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. There, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. John bailed on him. And we know that Barnabas, before the second missionary journey, Barnabas actually, the, the, the name Barnabas means son of encouragement or encourager. There's a conversation that Barnabas has with Paul. And it's one about restoration. He says, hey, we're going to head back out. We're going to check on the churches that we've established. We want to build into the leaders. We want to keep mentoring them. And I think that we need to bring Mark with us. Paul says, absolutely not. I'll have no quitters in my corner. Like ministry is hard enough as it is. We need to know that people are going to be in the trenches with us, that they're going to be in the foxholes doing the fighting with us. I can't have somebody who's supposed to have my back bail on me because it gets hard or because we have a disagreement. Well, so we know that Barnabas doesn't just like Mark, but he's actually, if you look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, the Bible tells us that they're cousins. So Barnabas must push back really hard on Paul because Scripture tells us that they had such a sharp disagreement that they went their own ways. They continued to do ministry. They just didn't do ministry together. You know, one of the things that has pained my heart over 20 some odd years as a pastor are churches that decide to split and they use that passage of scripture as a scapegoat to justify the division of the bride of Christ. I want to be really clear about something. What John Mark, Paul, and Barnabas were dealing with never split the church. You won't find anywhere in the text that God glorifies church splits. So if someone tells you, oh, you know, Paul and Barnabas couldn't get along and so this must be God ordained that we're just going to go do it, that right there is a lie from Satan himself. And that's not my opinion. That is in the whole of the text. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a God of restoration. Why would God divide his own bride? Why would God divorce himself? So any church that ever uses that as an excuse is not biblical. They may just be honest and say, I don't like that person. We're going to go do our own thing. That's fine. We probably don't like you either. <laughs> not really. We like everybody. But here's the deal. They have such a sharp disagreement that they go off and they do their own thing. So we learn a lot about John Mark. Young, zealous, he's intelligent. We're going to also find out that he, he is, uh, he's a writer. In fact, in just a moment, we're going to talk about kind of the date that we believe that this gospel book was written. But here's what I can tell you, that John Mark isn't actually writing from his own vantage point. He's a historian who's recording the facts of what he's learning from Peter, a disciple of Jesus 
In fact, the very first disciple called. Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee and he calls to Simon Peter and his brother Andrew who are fishing. He says, come follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Imagine the stories that Peter has of three years of life and ministry with Jesus. Now, again, I believe that, that, that Mark saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears, but he wasn't one of the chosen 12 disciples. He wasn't one of the apostles. Apostle simply means spokesperson or uh, an advocate for, for a messenger. A messenger. And so what we know is he's, he's taking down all kinds of details from Peter. So what about the audience? Who's he writing to? Each one of the four Gospels is very distinct. Matthew from Mark, Mark from Luke, Luke from John. In Mark's Gospel, it's actually addressing Gentiles and recent Jewish converts. And we know that because of the level of the detail about Jewish customs that Mark includes in his Gospel. Let me just explain that again. If he was writing to a largely Jewish audience, they would be familiar with Jewish customs. Therefore, the, they could just forego all of the details about the customs. But the fact that Mark includes as many details about Jewish customs in the gospel of Mark lets us know that he's dealing with a largely Gentile audience. And then in Rome, Jewish converts. We know that this letter is written sometime in the mid to late 60s, A.D. 60s. You say, well, how can you determine that? Well, again, go back to historians, Josephus and Eusebius and Papias. There's historical records that show the, the timestamp, the date of when this was written. But here's something else that's interesting. The way that Mark writes the gospel is so distinct from Matthew, Luke, and John. Uh, he doesn't waste any time. This is the shortest of all four Gospels and by a large margin. We know that the Gospel of Mark is written in the form of persecution. Now this is why this is important, okay? It's going to address persecution as kind of a, maybe a, 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 a meta-narrative. As part of a, a, a larger picture. What we know about Peter is that during Nero's reign, the emperor of Rome at the time, A.D. 64, he goes out and really uh, does crazy things. Like he actually lights his own city center on fire. He sets Rome ablaze and then blames followers of Jesus. He's going to go out and he's going to do extreme things to persecute Christians. Peter is going to become a martyr for his faith. He's going to actually be hung and crucified on a cross. But Peter demands, listen, do not hang me in the same manner as my Savior. I am unfit to be hung like that. And so they hang Peter upside down. They crucify him from the feet to the head. They're doing all kinds of unimaginable things to people who are following Jesus. And so I think that the writing speaks for itself in that it is direct, it is deliberate, it is intentional, it is clear, it is concise, and it speaks from a platform of persecution. So we know that that persecution happened in A.D. 64. So that means that if Peter is speaking to Mark, he's likely writing, journaling, uh, he, he's dictating what Peter's telling him up until that point, but then there becomes this, this uh, urgency in the message because of the persecution. So we know that mid to late 60s, AD 60s, that is, that this is written. So this persecution happens in Rome. Peter's martyred in Rome. And if Mark is with Peter, he's writing from Rome. He's writing to the Christians in Rome, this church in Rome, the Gentiles and the new Jewish converts. So let's talk about some of the literary features 
This is important because I think this is what sets Mark's gospel apart from the other. Matthew and Luke do something really specific and unique. They actually start with a genealogy, like the begats, going back to the fathers, the grandfathers, the great-grandfathers, the great-great-grandfathers, and so on and so forth. I think I've told you, some of you anyway, two years ago, my son, Caden, bought me for Christmas Ancestry DNA. It's where you spit in a tube, send it off, and they tell you this is who you are. I don't know if it's real or not. I did it, and it tells me who I am, at least genetically who I'm tied to. Why this is important for me is because two things. One, I think that the government already had my DNA, and two, <laughs> two, I'm adopted. I was adopted at 16 years old. I didn't know my biological father growing up, and I didn't know much about my biological mother because we were never close. And so as I've looked at my ancestry, like I've, I've been able to date this all the way back to the late 1400s. And I found out that I am like 98% Scottish, Irish, English. So for those of you who say, well, you're just a white guy. No, no, no. I'm Scottish, Irish, and English. <laughs> I also found out that I've got like five generations of Canadians. They came over from Scotland and stayed up in our uh, attic here to the U.S. So I guess maybe I'm a little Canadian too. I don't know, I hate hockey, so it's probably not too much. Here's the deal. Uh, he writes, uh, Matthew that is, and, and, and Luke, they write starting with the genealogy of Jesus. John actually starts before that. Anybody know what John 1.1 1, 1 says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What's the beginning? Like the creation of time. So Matthew and Luke think they're doing a really good thing by starting with a genealogy. And John's like, whoa, 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 watch this. Jesus. Mic drop, I'm out. Mark said, I don't have time for genealogy. And he starts from the time that Jesus begins his public life and ministry. We're going to read that in just a second. So if I were to break this book down into multiple parts, I'd tell you that the first third of the book, we're going to break it into thirds. The first third is Jesus' life in Galilee, which is where his public ministry starts. The middle third is the journey along the way. It's the travel from Galilee to where he'll end up in Jerusalem. And then the last third is his time in Jerusalem. I actually wanted to get a better understanding even of the chapters. And so as I read this, I broke it down into four parts. I want to read this because I want to make sure I get this right for you. I believe that chapters one through four address who the person of Jesus was. Chapters 1 through 4 speak about the person of Jesus. And I believe that in my own readings, chapters 5 through 9 show us the miracles and the ministry of Jesus. Chapters 1 through 4 teach us about the person of Jesus and verse, or excuse me, chapters 5 through 9 will then substantiate his claims. He's going to start off by introducing who, what, why, how, and now the where. And then chapters 5 through 9 are going to substantiate. Oh, you're not kidding. Chapters 10 through 13, while Matthew's gospel, all 28 chapters, hyper-focus on the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. And Mark is just really kind of, chapters 10 through 13 is the emphasis on the teachings. He'll teach both in the front and the back end, but it's not... It's not what's hyper-focused on. And then finally, chapters 14 through 16 are Jesus' final days and his ascension. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 are Jesus' final days and his ascension. And so I think Mark's gospel is an emphasis on preserving oral tradition, 
before everybody had electronic devices where they could create a voice memo, or before everybody had journals that they walked around, paper at the ready, like they weren't going off to kill goats, skin them, dry off the hide really quick and walk it around with a leather notebook. It was uh, oral tradition. It was intentionally passed down verbally and with accuracy. And they had scribes who did just what I referenced, where they would put on papyrus or on leather skins. They would record word for word the whole of the text, that is the law, the prophets, the Torah. But before that and beyond that was oral tradition. I believe that the Gospel of Mark's a biographical account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And I believe that it, it's a clear demonstration of the ministry, miracles, and teachings of Jesus. And perhaps more than any other gospel, the expectations on his followers. Now it's the expectations on his followers. So what the gospel of Mark is, it's a big picture. And there are a lot of pieces, including where you and I fit into the gospel. You know, I, I say this, maybe not as often as I should even, but I believe that the Bible is active and alive and it's still being written on our hearts today. And I want to clarify that statement. Revelation is clear, although Revelation isn't the last book written. Revelation says that the book is entire complete, not to be added to or taken away from, that you can't even alter one dot or one tittle, that it's inerrant, it's perfect, it's free from flaw. So I don't believe that we're adding to the gospel. That's not what I mean. I don't believe that we have a supernatural message from our Savior that isn't already in play. What I believe is that as you and I learn to see the big picture and the peace that our life plays in it, the gospel is being transferred to our hearts and realized in our our lives. The gospel is active and alive. And when we keep the big picture in mind and we start to learn how the pieces fit together, it's transferred to our hearts and transforms our lives. So let's look at these three verses together. Mark chapter 1. Let's examine just the first three verses. Remember, Matthew and Luke, they start with a genealogy. John starts at the beginning. Mark, from the day that Jesus begins his public ministry, beginning in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, this is the good news. Would you circle or highlight or underline or italicize somehow, even write it out again in bigger print, good news. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I'm sending you my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Now remember I said that we're going to begin at the end? Go all the way back to the very end, okay? Go back to Mark chapter 16. And you're going to want to parallel this. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. I'm going to give you five seconds to get there. Hurry up. Mark 16, 15. Mark 16, 15. We're going to begin at the end. When you're there, say, I'm there. The rest of you, hurry up. All right. If you're not there yet, you can circle back to it. Mark 16, 15. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to who? Everyone. 
he ends with the good news and he begins with the good news. Do you see that he's keeping the big picture in front of him? And what you're going to see is the whole of the gospel of Mark is the pieces fitting together to bring into full frame the picture of the good news. And he's going to use two prophets. Malachi chapter 3, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 is the prophet who says, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. Don't take my word for it. Right next to, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare a way. Write down Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, and go back and read it for yourself. Make sure that what I'm telling you is true. And then he's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. The second prophecy, Isaiah 40, verse 3. He is a voice, Jesus is a voice, shouting in the wilderness. And he's talking about John the Baptist here, getting ready for Jesus. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. He's talking about John the Baptist getting ready to announce Jesus' arrival. Keeping in mind that we're going to end where we begin, we have to ask and answer this question. What is the good news? What's the good news? What is the gospel? I was talking to one of our staff members just this last week who has a, an amazing group of uh, individuals that are in a Bible study with him. And he came to my office and he said, hey, something, something occurred to me today I hadn't really given much thought to. And I said, what's that? He said, as we started studying this text... One of the guys unapologetically threw up his hand and said, hey, what is the good news? Like, why is it capitalized? I've never seen that before. And, and, and so Steve Doolin, our operations outreach pastor, started to explain that the good news is the gospel. And quickly realizing that in 2023, here at Reach Church, we've identified by name 170 people who gave their life to Jesus for the very first time. Why that's important is, number one, that's why we exist. To be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. But number two, lest we forget that these new followers of Jesus, they don't know what you and I take for granted. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you know what the good news is. They don't. And I thought, what a beautiful place to start. Let's talk about the big picture. What is the good news? Well, in the original language, the Greek, it's the word euangelion. And it literally means great news or good tidings. It's an announcement. It's an announcement about some great thing that has occurred it's a public celebration. It's an announcement that says, listen, this is a matter of fact, and you need to know about this. It's a, it's a declaration as much as anything else. And so what is the good news? The good news is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the euangelion. It's all symbiotic. They're all one and the same. But the good news is this, that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, walked among us for 32 years, teaching, 
performing miracles, not the least of which was the very first turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And the last of the miracles was conquering death by robbing the grave and abandoning an empty tomb. And the significance of conquering death is that death no more has a sting on your life because Romans 3.23 tells us that the wages of sin is, excuse me, said all of us have fallen short of God's glory standard. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. But because Jesus, because of the gospel, because of the good news, Jesus came. You see, before Jesus came, there was an old system. There was an old law, the old covenant, that there were sacrifices that had to be made, including blood atonement, where they would take scapegoats. Maybe you've heard that term before, where they would put the sins of the nation of Israel on the scapegoat, and they would send the scapegoat out into the wilderness. They would sacrifice animals. They would, they would uh, parse out the different organs of the animal, and they would sprinkle the blood, and they would, on behalf of the nation, of Israel, the high priest would go in once a year and try to atone for the whole of the nation of, of Israel. There was this process that went into trying to be made right or be made restored or be made new in God's eyes, and it was only ever intended, uh, intended to be temporary. It's not a permanent solution. Until Jesus came once and for all, for all who would have faith in him and believe in him and understand that Jesus Christ through his blood and death on that cross, he sacrificed himself as the final, the ultimate blood atonement. No more need, no more need for human sacrifice in terms of our efforts. I don't mean human as in killing humans. I mean like the sacrifices that we would bring, doves, pigeons, burnt offerings, grain offerings, wave offerings, blood offerings. Jesus in the new covenant with this says, this, guys, is my body. It's going to be broken for you. And then he's going to take a common cup and he's going to say, this is my blood. It represents a new covenant, the fulfillment of the old covenant. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And his life is a fulfillment of that. And his blood is the ultimate atonement. Now, here's the deal. That atonement was for someone and for something. And that's the good news. The good news is that atonement is for you. Amen. Jesus died for you. Jesus lived a sinless life for you. Jesus, when he hung on that cross, he had you in mind. That's not just some beautiful, uh, picturesque moment. I need you to understand. The Bible tells us that from beginning of time, before creation, God knit you together in your mother's womb, and he knows you by name, and he counts every hair on your head. And if he knows you that intimately and that intentionally, then I promise you that as Jesus hung and he said these final words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do into your hands I commit my soul. He had your name on his lips. He had you in his mind. And his death was to replace your death. But he didn't stay dead. And they pierced his side. Blood spilled out. They took him down off the cross. It was a Sabbath, so they couldn't do a lot of work on him. They wrapped him up in burial cloths and they put him in a borrowed tomb. They didn't even belong to him, hence borrowed. Put a huge stone up to a ton, like 2,000 pounds, in front of the entrance to Jesus. Like I've been where they believe Jesus was buried. I've seen it with my own eyeballs. And then they put guards to ensure that nobody could tamper with it. And yet God made a way where there seems to be no other way. The stone was rolled away. And Mary, 
this treacherous woman filled with guilt and sin and shame is the first one to go to see where Jesus is and she's gonna finish the burial process. And when she gets there, he's not there. She sees Jesus, but she mistakes him for a gardener. She says, please, sir, tell me, what have you done with my Lord and Savior? Let me go get him so I can bury him properly. And just by using her name, Jesus says, Mary. She recognizes him and she calls out, teacher! And she clings to Jesus and he says, don't hold on to me. We got work to do, Mary. And then listen to this. The same word that we use for preach, the same word, practically speaking, that we use to preach the news, to tell, is the same word that Jesus commissions Mary with to go and tell the disciples and the others what she had experienced. So she goes as an advocate, as a spokesperson, and she tells everybody about Jesus' resurrection. And then Jesus, in his final words, he's hanging out with his disciples 40 days. He restores Peter, who denied him three times, all kinds of crazy things. He's sitting up there on a mountain, and he says, uh, listen, guys, I got to go away. It's better for me to be gone because I'm going I'm I'm to send a counselor, a comforter, the Holy Spirit. You're going to know when he's here. It's going to be a fire. It's going to be crazy. But it's better for me to be gone. And understand this, I'm coming back. I'm going to come back and set all things straight for all time. But until that happens, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. So stop standing around and get going. The good news is that Jesus... And Jesus loves you and he died for you. He loves you and he died for you. He gave his life for you. The good news is that all you have to do is believe in your heart and profess with your mouth. Like repent from your sins. God, I'm sorry I screwed up. Forgive me. Jesus, Hebrews says that that, that it's by faith. Like you put your faith in Jesus and trust that he's the one and you're going to be saved. The Bible says that it's by grace through faith that we're saved, not by works. James goes on to say that our works are going to be a natural byproduct of our salvation. But listen, guys, the good news, the big picture is that Jesus loves you. He died for you, and he's coming back for you. And so we're going to spend the next two years looking at the good news. We're going to spend the next two years looking at all the different pieces that come together to make the whole of the good news, the gospel. If you don't leave here this morning with any other thing than what I'm about to tell you, hold on tightly to this. Jesus loves you. Revelation 3.20 tells us that Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking in the same way that Peter stood. In the same way that Peter stood knocking at the door. Revelation 3.20 says that if you open up the door and let me in, we're going to have dinner as friends. Like I'm going to sit at the table and we're going to be friends. But how many of us recognize that Jesus is knocking on the door to our hearts and yet we are, we open the door, we even see it. We know it's Jesus. And yet we slam the door on Jesus' face and run back to the living room waiting for him to show up. So we're going to look at the good news. I want to leave you with four verses as we close. You can write these down. I'm just going to read them off really quickly. These are important. John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. When it comes to the gospel, the good news, and how it applies to your life. So the word became human, Jesus, and made him his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. In Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, 8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us, 
while we were still sinners. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.17 declares that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. And finally, John 3, 16 and 17 tells us that God loves the world so much that he gave his one and his only son. I'll take that. I don't want you to drop it. It'll be a mess everywhere. <laughs> 2,000 pieces. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, places their trust in him, will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Jesus Christ. Salvation is available for you today. Trust in Jesus. Ask him to be not only savior of your life, but Lord And your life is going to be transformed forever. So we're going to start the big picture. Let's keep the big picture in mind over the next two years. And we're going to start to see how the pieces fit together. Amen? Amen. Amen.